So that's 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 13. And if you have the Church Bibles, that's page uh, 1154. So that's 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now's the time to grab a Bible, and uh, we've got these various turquoise church Bibles around the place. If you don't have one with you or an app, it's on page 1154 of these Bibles. That's where we're going to spend our time next half hour or so, uh, thinking about perhaps the most famous chapter in uh, certainly 1 Corinthians, maybe the whole Bible. Um, It's certainly the most stunning piece of literature that you could ever read. Maybe one of the most stunning pieces of literature in all of uh, existence. Uh, these verses have been read privately by billions, uh, publicly on TVs and uh, in movies, from Welsh chapels to royal weddings, maybe at your own uh, wedding. Rightly beloved words. Uh, they're stunning words as uh, we had them read out. But uh, the fact is they're almost universally completely misunderstood. Um, or at least they're taken out of context. Now, when I was uh, uh, training to be a pastor, uh, someone once told me that if you take a text away from the context, you're left with a con. And uh, boom, boom. And we don't have a con as we study the Bible. And uh, the way you would read, or lots of people read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, anyone would think that Paul had um, accidentally misplaced his Derby winning wedding sermon that he preaches everywhere. He just dropped it and filed it away in the middle of a random passage uh, to do with spiritual gifts and worship in the church. Whereas in actual fact, I think that chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is a powerful and a convicting chapter. Um, Because it's a word to the Corinthian church, and I guess to us today, in the way they and we might be exercising the gifts that God has given us. We're hidden away in the heart of chapters 12, 13 and 14, which we've been studying this term. And uh, Paul has been saying, and the big message really of our passage today is, regardless of what's taking place or what takes place on the outside of our lives, you know, how gifted you are or not, how gifted the person next to you is or not, regardless of that external, it may seem really impressive, it may not. The key thing is, 
what's going on in here? That is the key issue. Not the outside, but the inside. And so what reads as a stunning poem extolling the beauty of sublime love, when you snip it out of context, it's actually a stinging rebuke to the Corinthians, and it exposes the hollowness of their so-called spirituality. Yes, you see, they looked incredibly impressive on the outside. They did the right things, they said the right things, they had the right gifts, very fruitful-looking, dramatic-looking, but like an enormous rotten tree. You punch a hole in it, and it's hollow inside. There's nothing substantial within, hidden away. Now, our chapter we're looking at today, uh, chapter 13, it's made up of three paragraphs. There's so much in these verses, um, I decided to kind of break it at verse 7, and then, uh, God willing, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to carry on uh, with verses 8 through to 13. So we're going to see three crucial lessons about love from verses 1 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. Here's our first lesson, the necessity of love. It's not what you do, it's the way that you do it, as someone once sang. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and uh, we've there seen that God has deliberately given the local church and members of local churches a variety of gifts, spiritual gifts. They're not kind of natural endowments, they're spiritual from God, the Spirit, gifts. And everyone, if we're part of Christ, if we know Jesus Christ personally, we've all been given a gift. And every gift is valuable, like every bit of your body is valuable. And as a spoiler for what we're going to see in a few weeks' time in chapter 14, uh, Paul is going to say that we need to exercise our gifts for the good of the body, and particularly seek those gifts that build the body up. So Paul is all about bodybuilding, and we're going to see that in a few weeks' time. But how do we do that? Well, the way we do it, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31b, and uh, down to uh, chapter 13, is by seeking the most excellent way, which is the way of love. Now, you may remember, if you uh, have been with us, or if you've uh, known anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, various people in the Corinthian church are priding themselves on how amazingly gifted they are, and spiritual they are, and impressive they are. Look at us, look at me, look at what I can do, look at what we can do, look at how, how much we're doing, how many people come to our churches, how impressive we look. Paul's saying, uh, let's have a think. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast or give my body over to the flames, some versions say. But do not have love, I gain nothing. A few things to observe from what Paul is saying. He's a brilliant pastor. And because he's such a good pastor, instead of doing what he could very easily have done, he's, he's speaking to the Corinthians about the ways they're falling short. He could have said, if you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, if you have the gift of prophecy, or faith, or knowledge, etc., but don't have love, he's meaning you, he's talking to the Corinthians, but he says, if I, do you know that? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I... Have faith in humanity, etc. But don't have love, I gain nothing. You see, he knows pastorally very often when you're trying to communicate to somebody, you don't kind of wag your finger and say, you, 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 you. You identify with the person that you're talking with. 
and uh, say, you know, yeah, if I do this, this is, you know, I could be totally you know, wrong as well, rather than just kind of wag his finger at the church. Good lesson for us all to learn. And then he goes through five different types of gifting that the church might have prided themselves in. Let's go through them quite quickly. If I speak the tongues of men or of angels, this is the big issue in the book of Corinthians, in the church of Corinth, and in chapters 12 to 14, over 20 times in these three chapters, uh, people are suggesting that unless you speak in tongues, you are a kind of lower down Christian, lower down the food train. That's a kind of litmus test of being first rate follower of Jesus. So if you spoke in tongues, you were in. If you didn't, you were out. And it's an ancient problem in the book of Corinth. It's actually a modern problem as well today. Um, Many people have told me that they have been told over the years that unless they speak in tongues, they're a lower down Christian. I was told that when I was a young Christian. Maybe you've been told it too. Now, just to be absolutely clear, as we go on reading what Paul says in chapter 14, verse 18, Paul does not denigrate speaking in tongues. He himself says he's grateful to God that he speaks in tongues more than anyone else. So he's not against speaking in tongues per se, but he is against using them as a criteria for spiritual togetherness or sortedness or being inside with God. The criteria for spiritual maturity is not what you do, but the way that you do it. It's not, you see, the gifting on the outside that is the marker for whether someone really has got it. But it's the hard attitude on the inside that matters. The motive behind it all. Why are you doing what you're doing? Now, we saw this a, a few weeks ago in our All Age Service, for those of you who were here. We, we heard how the Lord said to Samuel, when Samuel was looking for a new king to replace Saul, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, that human beings look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's where he is concerned. Not what you can do, but the way you do it. What's going on inside? Now, we're going to think a bit more about speaking tongues in a few weeks' time, but um, I think Paul is saying you can express the most intimate worship of God, whether publicly or privately, but without love, it's a clanging gong, resounding cymbal. Now, no offence to the uh, the, the percussion uh, team here at Highfields, uh, resounding gongs and clanging cymbals were used as part of the non-Christian pagan worship in the temples all around Corinth. And uh, gongs and cymbals were used either to arouse the gods into action. Uh, those of you who know your Bibles may remember in uh, 1 Kings where Elijah and the prophets of Baal are gathering uh, together. And Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to kind of bang their drums loud and wake up your God, he's asleep. And that's what, one of the reasons that they bang gongs to kind of wake up the, the spirits to get to work. And partly they bang gongs and cymbals to arouse themselves and the emotions in their own lives uh, so that they would feel kind of a bit of a frenzy in what's going on. Now, Paul's saying, look, you, you, if you don't have love, all the intimate expressions of worship that you enjoy, actually that's much more like the pagan temple down the road than it is a Christian gathering. If I speak in the tongues of men of angels, but don't have love. Then he says, if I have the gift of prophecies, there's the next, next of the gift. Gift of prophecy can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Now we're going to think a bit more about prophecy in a few weeks' time. But here it seems that Paul is less focused on the, the kind of expressions of worship and more on the teaching ministry within a church. Uh, if verse 1 is a, a challenge to the more charismatic uh, amongst us, I think verse 2 is a challenge to the more conservative Bible teaching uh, fans within a church. Those who love sharing God's word and, and passing on the word to each other. 
who love digging into mysteries, theological mysteries, with big fat books of theology on their shelves, and they're au fait with the latest theological issues of the day. They're up on all the blogs and the podcasts. They go to all the conferences that the sound people go to. They're really in. You might have that. You might have third kind of gift, a faith that can move mountains. This isn't saving faith. This, I guess, is like the kind of visionary faith, the big picture faith, the, the, the visionary leader, maybe a church planter or a movement leader who can imagine wonderful things for God. Give me that mountain. We're going to go there. I can see possibilities, opportunities to serve God, however it's going to be. Let's go for it. Amazing. Oh, we'd love one of those in our church. Lift the bonnet without love. Worthless, says Paul. Wow, it's heart-hitting stuff, isn't it? Heart-hitting. Oh, verse 3, maybe this is more your cup of tea. If I give all I possess to the poor. It's a needy time to be alive here in the 21st century. It was needy in in, uh, Corinth. There was a great um, food crisis back in those days as well. And maybe, Paul's saying, uh, somebody's really committed to generous mercy ministries, giving their stuff away. Maybe in the second half of verse 3, if you look down there, if I give, what does it say? If I give my body over to hardship that I may boast... uh, Submit my body to the flame, I'll take suffering, hit me, do whatever you want to do. If I don't have love as the driver, I gain nothing. It's very strong language by Paul, is it? Incredibly strong. You think, well, can you really do all those things without love driving you as the engine under the bonnet? I think the fact that Paul suggests you can implies that you can actually do those things without having love as the driver. You can scramble after this or that or the other gift. I want to have that gift. I want to be trained in that gift. I want to say the right Christian things. I want to do the right Christian things. Lead the right Christian meetings and ministries. I can honour God with my lips, like the Pharisees, whose hearts were far from me, said Jesus. Look, I'm, I'm serving you, God. I'm giving money here. Look at this. It's all in no. What's going on in there? What's going on in the heart? Why are you doing this? It's all an act. It's all a show. You're using the service of God as leverage to promote yourself and to say how wonderful you are and how impressive you are and well done you and everyone pat you on the back. It's a sham, says Paul. All without love, it's nothing. The necessity of love It's not what you do. It's the way that you do it. So, so, I've been studying it this last week, and I think the million-dollar question that kind of springs out of the text, having said that, is if expressive worship of God is not sufficient, and if sharing God's word with someone else is not sufficient, and if the courage of a visionary or the sacrifice of, of a generous giver to charity or even the willingness to offer your body up to be kind of suffering for, for the cause of Christ, if that's not sufficient without love, then, what on earth is love, Paul? What is love that you so need it above and beyond those other really cool things? Like, I'd love someone to do all those things, he says, but we need more love. Necessity of love. Without it, those worthy things are worth less. So, it's really important to go with the Lord's definition of love, which is our second point, the definition of love. And so, right on cue... Paul comes up with this amazing 15-stage definition of love. Actions speak louder than words. That's one way I've summarised it. We can go in a number of different ways. There's far more here than we can get into, but um, let's just kind of work through it. I'm not sure if you are fans of The Crown in your home. 
Any of you watched The Crown? Maybe some, a, few, a few fans of The Crown. We kind of got a bit bored of it after a few seasons in. The kind of melodramatic you know, fiction was a bit like, come on, a bit tedious. But I think with The Queen's passing and a new season's coming out, I thought, let me just catch up with a few of them. And um, <laughs> I watched a few and I was reminded of the toe-curling interview that the then Prince of Wales uh, gave upon his engagement to Lady Diana. If you remember, there's an episode about this, and it was totally toe-curling. The interviewer asks, uh, Prince Charles, Lady Diana Spencer, and I suppose you're in love. And uh, you remember where this goes? 19-year-old Diana, 19, bless her, replies immediately, of course, whereas the 32-year-old Prince Charles awkwardly drops the immortal line, whatever in love means. Oh, for goodness sake, right at the very outset, that really happened. I remember seeing it as as a kid. That happened, and history tells us that... Love didn't matter that much as far as Charles and Di were concerned. But what does love mean? And so um, Paul defines it for us. He describes it in loads of different ways. Um, here's, I guess, the, here's um, one of the challenges. Sam Albury puts it this way. We know so much about love that we don't realise how much we don't know about it. <laughs> Which I think is quite a good way of putting it. Um, I think for lots of us, we, we think you know, love and romance are synonyms. Or love and feelings, or love and spontaneity, or love and emotion, or love and sex, perhaps. Listen to another writer, Andrew Wilson. Few of us use love to describe even close friendships, and we are more likely to use it about ice cream than a colleague. If you search for love on Google Images, you'll get a flurry of red hearts and Valentine's flowers, but precious few parents with their children and even fewer pictures of Christ on the cross. For most of the people in our communities, love evokes sex and sentimentality more than steadfastness and sacrifice. Now, I suppose in the first instance, we need to be clear that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when we're defining love, Paul is talking about horizontal love, not vertical love. Just to be clear, um, it's, it's about the kind of love within the church family, And not just the love of someone who's like me and easy to love, but to love someone who's near me, whoever that person happens to be. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Love within the body of Christ, not love for Christ. Of course, love for Christ and Christ's love for us is foundational to chapter 13. And it's the grounds that any love that you might try and have has to be built on. And at this point, the Apostle John is really helpful. Here's John, uh, 1 John 4 19 and 20, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. Really, really helpful. So the vertical has to go first. Likewise in 1 John 3 verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll see um, in just four verses, 15 descriptions of what love looks like and, uh, or what it should look like. Because uh, we mustn't forget, this is not, again, uh, a, a beautiful poem that has been uh, written together. This is a, one side of a conversation with a church that's blatantly forgotten what it means to love. 
and uh, we need to, to line this up. Now, having said that, I don't want to rip 1 Corinthians 13 away from you if it's a really kind of special chapter. Lots of us had it read at our weddings, or if you haven't done I think it's a really profound description of love which can apply in all sorts of different contexts, friendships, uh, parent-child, romance, etc. And as I was uh, preparing for today, I remember that when I was uh, dating my wife, my, my then girlfriend, but now wife Sally, about 20 years ago, we took the 15 descriptions of love in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and over 15 weeks, we just reflected on each one a week. And that was our kind of conversation topic. Whenever we met up, oh, so today we're going to talk, this week we're going to think about love isn't easily angered. How does that work? It doesn't rejoice in the truth. It doesn't rejoice in evil, etc. And we, we did that. Maybe if you're, if you're dating, that would be a nice thing to think about. Maybe you're, you're already married and you want to refresh how and why and what does love look like in your marriages. Well, that might be an idea for you. Uh, but it's not primarily about romantic relationships. It's about love within the church. And we're going to see a few little observations about this. We can't work through all 15. There's much more here than we have time for. But a few observations. One observation is that note how Paul uses both positives and negatives in this section. So he has seven positives and eight negatives. The positives are love is patient, it's kind, doesn't envy, oh sorry, love is patient, it's kind, it always rejoices in the truth, if you jump down to verse six, it's always protects, trusts, hopes and perseveres. So seven positives, but then there are eight negatives. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonour others, not self-seeking, not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs and doesn't delight in evil. Now, why is Paul doing it that way? I think, again, he's a good pastor, he's a good teacher, and he knows often we learn via the negative. Don't do the negative as well as learn from the positive, because it's easy to think we're doing well. Actually, ah, I'm, I fell on the negative rather than the positive. Note, too, I guess this is a really important point. Paul is crystal clear that love isn't about sentimentality, but behaviour. It's not about feelings, but about action. That's absolutely crucial here. Now, again, as I was preparing, I, I couldn't help but think about some of the, the great classic um, songs in the 90s buzzing around my head. Like, the pop songs just full of rubbish about love, aren't they? You, maybe you remember the, I think it's the second longest in the charts as number one uh, song by Wet 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 in the 90s was Love Is All Around. Do you remember that one? Some of you old enough to remember it? A few nods, you old rockers out there. Um, anyone remember what, the number one longest, album, longest single? Anyone remember that one? Brian Adams, you got it, yeah. It's always the pastors get that. John Reed's got that in the first one. Uh, love is all, yeah, everything I do, I do it for you, was Brian Adams. But um, Wet, Wet, Wet sang Love is All Around, uh, made popular in Four Winds at a Funeral, I think it was. This is what um, uh, they sang. And you know, they, they tell the truth, hand it to them. You know I love you, I always will. My mind's made up by the way I feel. That was a Marty Pello. My mind's made up by the way I feel. If I feel like I love you, well, I'll love you. If I don't, Hard luck. But for Paul, love is not about feelings, it's about action. Let's go through the positives very quickly. Whatever you feel, love is patient. Let's think in the context of church. Let's do some quick applications. Maybe you are on a team and you're meeting someone and they're late. And they're late and they're late. They're supposed to be opening up the church for you and you've got there at the crack of dawn to play music and they're late. Love is patient. Love is kind. It puts itself out to help someone else. Maybe that's picking up a fellow church member on the way in. Um, someone who can't drive or isn't able to, to get here. Maybe it's making an extra meal for someone in need within the church family. Maybe it's helping mow the lawn for someone uh, who can't do that anymore. And then if you jump down to verse 7, let's think about some more of the positives. Love rejoices with 
the truth. I love that. Love celebrates God's truth wherever and whenever it's taught. Uh, It might be, dare I say, that the sermon or the Bible study that you've sat through wasn't the best sermon that's ever been preached. Happens. Or the best Bible study you've ever been in. But if the truth was taught, then we need to rejoice in that. And we need to learn to feed off maybe not the best sermon or the best Bible study you've ever heard and learn to feed it rather than just become a kind of you know, sermon Bible study pundit. Oh, that wasn't very good and that wasn't very good. And kind of, we wag our fingers and we, we, we don't like the bad. Well, rejoice in the good that's there. Love always protects. What a line, top of verse 7. Love, love is honourable. It's trustworthy. The most vulnerable in our communities and in our, in our church family are safe with love. What a tragedy it has been, and it was good that uh, Beth was able to pray about this. What a tragedy it has been that churches and church leaderships have at times been negligent in caring for the most vulnerable. We take the safeguarding of the most vulnerable children and vulnerable adults incredibly seriously here at Highfields, and uh, we want that to be an expression of love, because love protects. You should feel safe with God's people. Love always trusts. Our culture so cynical, isn't it? So critical, so sceptical. And it's quite easy to become a bit disillusioned when we look around and see the failure of leadership and, and people taking advantage left, right and centre. Well, love looks for the good and it trusts and it says, you know, I'm not going to become a cynic like the rest of the kind of tabloid culture that is all around us. Supremely, we look to Christ who never fails, never lets us down, can be totally trusted. Love always hopes. It always hopes. And uh, that, that means to say, you know, our culture gets lost in the, in the here and now. We're obsessed with, it's going to be Christmas before very long, but then when we think further afield, all we can think about is the doom and gloom of the economy and the climate. And it's the worst thing you can possibly imagine. Well, Christians, we have to have our eyes open to those things, but we look past the doom and gloom forwards on to a risen, reigning King Jesus. We believe Jesus Christ physically died, he physically rose again, and he will one day return and he will restore our broken, hurting world, bringing full light into our darkness. And love always perseveres. Love is all about commitment. That's a crucial thing that we need to learn. I saw a tweet uh, yesterday that had been uh, retweeted 8,000 times. And let me read it to you. It said, instead of till death us do part, how about for as long as this feels healthy, safe and meaningful for both of us? I was like, really? I understand the sentiment behind that, but that is just such a low bar expectation on entry into marriage. No, we can do better than that. Things go wrong, but we can do better than that. Commitment is crucial in all of this. Love is not about feelings, but about action. And sadly, the last observation is this is so un-Corinthian. Unbelievably un-Corinthian. Let's just go through some of those negatives as well. Uh, Verse 8, uh, no, excuse me, um, where are the negatives? Here we go. Verse, um, verse 4, love does not envy, but the Corinthians did. If you um, are taking notes, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. There's jealousy, there's quarrelling. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm better than you, my leader's better than your leader. Envy. There's boasting. Love doesn't boast, but the Corinthians boasted all right. You know, in... Um, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that we've been given. If, if you happen to be around someone who is brilliant at, whatever it is, music or, or, or teaching or leading Bible studies or sharing their faith, that's not because they're an amazing person and they can be proud about it. It's because they've been gifted in that way. But we 
are proud, we're boastful. Do not do it. Love is not proud, but the Corinthians were. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. A tragic situation is going on in the church. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmom. But rather than you know, speaking negatively about that within the church, the church is proud about what's going on and Paul rebukes them. Or if you look at verse, um, uh, you, you'll see in verse 5, it does not dishonour others. It's not self-seeking. But the Corinthians were. They'd come to the Lord's Supper getting drunk on the way or eating all the food and leaving nothing for anyone else. Or if you look at the, the last little line, it's not, um, it, it keeps no record of wrongs. It's not easy angered. It doesn't delight in evil. But the Corinthians did. We're told even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they were taking each other to court within the church family, suing one another, accusing each other, keeping records of wrongs left and right. I think that's why Paul addresses exactly these things in that big long list, because the Corinthians were failing left, right and centre. The definition of love. Our actions speak far more than our words. It may be that we're very impressive on the outside. Great music, great kids work, great student work. Bible studies, teaching, evangelism. What's inside? Actions are far more important than the words that we may say. Now, you may be sitting here and thinking, goodness me, we failed, we failed, we failed. And I I read that, I think, how many of the 15 would I say, yeah, I'm doing pretty well on them? Maybe when you go home, as an an exercise, maybe over Sunday lunch, you just remind yourselves of the 15, just talk about it, like, I'd love to grow in this. I observe this in you. You're really kind. You're really patient. You don't rejoice in it, etc. And have a conversation with those who you're with. But if you're anything like me, you'll know you have failed and keep failing repeatedly in this. Amazingly, this is not how you get saved, how you get into a relationship with God. You keep these things, the 15, and then if you're there, good enough, you've climbed the ladder and over into heaven. What you will have observed with our five uh, young adults, as they were baptised, they each one said it was Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection that gives them hope and new life. Which brings us to our third point, the demonstration of love. We could have finished here, but I felt that we need to remind ourselves that where Christians fail, Christ never fails. Christ prevails. Christ has won. And uh, with this point, I'm going to flick us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you flick back a few pages. We've been studying 1 Corinthians for quite a while now, and uh, there's lots that's not healthy within the church, if I'm totally honest. And it would have been very easy for Paul to come out with both barrels from the start of the book. He doesn't. He starts by saying this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4. I always thank my God for you, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. His grace given you in Christ Jesus. He sees these are people who have received grace. Yes, they've got gifts, but more important than gifts are grace. The grace that has come through Christ. The one who, when we read the list, love is well, there's only one person who, who passes the test here, isn't there? Jesus, of course, the most patient, kind didn't envy, didn't boast, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, didn't keep a record of wrongs, didn't delight in evil, rejoice with the truth. He always protects, he always trusts, he always hopes, always perse- Jesus, 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 every time. Fundamentally, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, not the patient ones, not the kind ones, not the 
boast-free ones or the humble ones. You see, when God sent Jesus to die, he didn't look into the future and see who, who are people who look like they might be good and kind and patient and reliable and humble and other person-centred and go after those and bring them in. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came and he lived a perfect life. He gave his life up for people who fail every way. But say, sorry, Lord God, for what I've done. Please, Lord God, forgive me and change me. Thank you that Jesus has died in my place. I'd love to know you for myself. And if you do that, he'll welcome you in, even though we fail and fail and fail again. We've seen the definition of love. We've seen the necessity of love. Ultimately, we see it demonstrated in Christ. So can I encourage you, maybe you don't yet know Jesus Christ yourself. Why don't you ask the friend who brought you along, why is it that you want to follow Jesus? There's an opportunity to pray with someone from the pastoral team afterwards, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. We'll be just down here on the right-hand side of the, the stage at the end. But let's have a moment of quietness, and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in our hearts as we read these words. They're beautiful words, they're they're majestic words, but boy, they're so humbling. We think of the times when we've relied on the gifts that we may have or may not have, rather than our heart, our love for you, our love for one another. Oh, please, Lord, forgive. Please, Lord, convict us of where we need to change. In that long list, there's 15 areas. Please, will you just put your finger on one or two things? Maybe right now we can think of that is the thing that needs to change. Lord, we offer our lives to you afresh. We don't want to hide behind our gifts and what we do. That's irrelevant. You see right in our hearts. Please, Lord, change us from within. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for the grace that he gives failures like us, like me. And we pray in his precious name. Amen.